Hi, I'm Anna Rice. Our second reading is from Luke 1. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. The word of the Lord. So needless to say, the elementary school playground was a brutal place. Um, and you'd line kids up, right? You'd pick people. And while we did away with that in gym class, we continue to do that today. I think one of the things we find is that everything in life is a lineup of picking teams. It's a constant choosing of who's the best and who's the last to be picked. And so whether that is in a job application or getting into college or your performance reviews, you will find that all of life is this. The successful are chosen again and again. And we see this in other areas besides those things that involve success of performance in academics or job. You see the chosen lineup thing when you talk about how, um, we talk about like, it's beauty, it's the beauty on Instagram, or it's the clever on TikTok, or it's those who are witty and um, over the top on Twitter, who have all the followers. The dull and the average person does not have a lot of followers. This sense of how much being chosen, that lineup from an elementary school playground to college, to your job, to social media, it's still how life works. The best are chosen again and again, and then there's those at the end of the line. And I don't think we can overestimate how much this being chosen because of being good enough affects our worldview and our self-understanding. All of us have this constant need to be recognized or to get credit for something. We want to be chosen. We want to be chosen for something. And so usually what we do is we'll pick and choose what it is that we're going to be chosen for. If you're not somebody who feels that you're beautiful, you will not be posting pictures of yourself on Instagram. If you're not athletic, you will not be out on the field, but you will be in the academic world. We will find whatever it is that we can succeed at and build our identity around that. We want to be chosen. We want to be first. And yet the story of Christmas, which is behind everything that we're looking at in this Advent season, the story of Christmas is doing something entirely different than the first being chosen. And thus Advent, which is the four weeks leading up to Christmas, and Advent is actually not about Christmas, it's about anticipating God coming again. It's the hope for a broken and fallen world. Advent is also pointing us to something entirely different. And we get that especially in Mary's song, The Magnificat, what's known as the Magnificat, in which she praises God, wonders in what God is doing, because God is the God who chooses the poor and the lowly and the least and does not choose the rich, the proud, the successful, and the powerful. The backstory on Mary declaring this thing in Luke 1 is 
in Luke 1, this Magnificat, this praise uh, poem that she declares, is that we first have two stories of God announcing that women are going to have a baby. The first is the story that comes to Elizabeth. Elizabeth is barren. She is an older woman. She is postmenopausal. She is. Um, she can't have kids. She's never had them. She's never going to have kids. And the Lord comes and tells her through her husband, "You are going to have a child." He's going to be a prophet to prepare the way for the Lord. She, as somebody who is barren, is an outcast or lower down in society. In a culture that valued having children, she had none. And the second person, of course, is Mary, and we know that story a little bit better. The angel comes to Mary saying, I am coming to bring salvation, and you are going to have a baby. But Mary is not a barren old woman. She is an unwed teenage girl. She's an unwed teenage girl from a rural town. And I think one of the things we need to see is what's happening there. The beginning of the whole story is that of the unlikely being chosen. And and then we get right before Mary declares this thing that we call the Magnificat, we get that Mary flees, and that's probably the right word, to visit her, her cousin Elizabeth, this older woman. And when the two of them meet, they're both pregnant. And the baby inside the womb of Elizabeth leaps for joy at the presence of Mary and the baby inside of her womb the Holy Spirit moves an unborn baby inside the womb of Elizabeth because of the unborn baby inside of the womb of Mary. God has something to say about life from the beginning. His Spirit is at work in those that aren't even seen yet in this story. And this story is also about who is chosen and the unlikeliness of both of them. So again, a barren old woman who would have been in a culture that valued men, not women, who valued having kids, not not having kids. Elizabeth, who is barren in her old age, is an unlikely person to be chosen as the way that God would bring the prophet, John the Baptist. And Mary, at the complete other end, is an unwed teenage girl She's probably about 13 or 14 years old from a rural hill country in a backwater place. And in that culture, in that day and age, she was about as um, unlikely of a person to be chosen. Like if you're lining people up to choose for dodgeball, she is definitely, she doesn't get chosen at all. You're like, get down to the bottom of the line and you're like, I'll take, do you have to play Mary? based on the categories of status, of what made somebody valuable, of why somebody should be in or not, Mary was as far down as they come. A young woman from a rural place who is unmarried, and yet God chooses her. And because we know the Christmas story so well, I think we can overlook the dramatic reversal that's happening here. The upside-downness of both Elizabeth and Mary's part in the Christmas story and how it demands or means to reorder our values. Let me read the Magnificat again that Anna read for us just a second ago. 
and hear what God is saying to each of us through this praise of what he is doing, not only in Mary, but in the world. Mary, after seeing Elizabeth and her baby jumping inside of her womb and they they greet each other, Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humblest state of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is on those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown the strength of his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Mary, again, 14-year-old, largely uneducated, rural, young girl, ninth grader, eighth grader, and she declares by the power of the Holy Spirit what God is doing in her life and in the world. She's talking about how God is acting in his process of redeeming the world through her. N.T. Wright called this the gospel before the gospel. She's declaring the gospel in this 30 weeks probably before Christmas, 30 years before Easter. There she is in her first trimester, and she's declaring what God is doing in the world. And in a way that precedes what God does in Jesus. What she's highlighting is God's promises and God's faithfulness. In verses 54 and 55, she says, his promises to Abraham. This is what he's doing. God promised 2,000 years ago to Abraham, our, our forefather, what he was going to do. He chose Abraham, an unlikely man, to have a son and to birth a nation, and through that nation to bring about his salvation. And he's doing it now. He's fulfilling his promises through Abraham and to his people. And just as he chose Abraham, he's now working in my life. The question that it's begging is, does God do great things in every generation? Do we actually believe that God does great things in every generation? Mary believed so. And so when the Lord comes to her through the angel and says, you will have a son, she believes because she recognizes the nature of God, his character and how he has acted, and the promises of God, the things he said he would do. And that even though she's an unlikely choice, that's sort of what God does. That he is the God who lifts up and brings down. We see this in verses uh, 50 to 53, or 51 to 53. Mary declares the nature of God. The God of the Bible, the God that she believes in, is the one who has shown the strength of his arm. He has scattered the proud. He has brought down the mighty and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, but the rich get no dinner. God's favor his presence and his power are working with the weak and the poor and the outcast, the unchosen. Whom does God exalt? 
And whom does he humble? It's not at all how we do it. Because God is in the business of doing something for a different reason than we think about it. And what's amazing is she realizes that this is all happening to her. She says in verses uh, 46, 47 through to 50, my soul magnifies the Lord, my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. Like, why did God choose me, she says. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. His mercy is on those who fear him from generation to generation. All this is being realized, God's plan of salvation is being realized right now through her. N.T. Wright in his commentary uh, on this very passage translates this fr these phrases himself, and I love the way he translates it. He's citing the Magnificat in his own translation of the Greek, and he says, my spirit exalts in my Savior, my God. For he saw his servant girl in her humility. For now I'll be blessed by all peoples to come. For the powerful one, whose name is holy, has done great things for me. For me. His mercy extends from father to son, from mother to daughter, daughter for those who fear him. I mean, think about what she's doing here. She's realizing in some way, in some little way, what God is doing is mind-blowing. He's entering the world to save it through her. She's like, he's done great things for me. I mean, doesn't he know who I am? I mean, who I'm not? Why would he choose me? For me. I think... If you're in this place today and are not the first chosen, if you've lived a life of being last, or even more recently, you've experienced that. Mary's God has done great things for me is that reminder that God is not measuring you by the same standards that everyone else is measuring you. He doesn't look at you in the way that everyone else wants to look at you. He doesn't care how many followers you have. He's not looking at your bank account or your degrees. He certainly wasn't looking at Mary's. But what she said yes to was not just something that was awesome. In saying yes to the Lord, it involved a heart that was right with God and trusted God because what God was asking her to do was something incredibly hard. This was not a, hey, here's your lottery ticket. Hey, you win. In verse 39, a couple of verses earlier, right after the Annunciation, Mary, it says, made haste to go to visit her cousin Elizabeth, who lived, you know, 30, 50, 70 miles away. Basically, here's probably what happened. Mary has the Annunciation by the angel saying, you're going to have a son, and then all of a sudden, she's pregnant. And she tells her parents, hey, I'm pregnant, but don't worry, it's from the Lord. At which point, her father... And her mother, for her safety, send her to Elizabeth so that nobody kills her. And because she would be disgracing them. Oh, she's just going to visit uh, Elizabeth, her cousin. So we're not sure whether it's because they're embarrassed by her, knowing that she will disgrace them. 
by having a child out of wedlock at this point, whether Joseph is going to come and execute her, and they're worried about that, whether the townspeople will for the sake and honor of their name, but she gets sent away. Go have this baby down there. Go there. Let's figure this out. Maybe it'll go away. Maybe this isn't really happening. She was being invited into a life as a total outcast in that culture. To have a baby outside of a marriage. To claim that it was from the Lord. To already be a poor peasant girl meant that everything about her life was going to be incredibly hard. She would always be outside of any community. And then on top of that, she was being invited into a life of suffering, of heartache, because her son was Jesus. Her son was not the future king in the same way that all of us think about it or they did back then. Her son would be rejected and crucified. And yet she says yes. God's choosing of Mary does not make sense. As modern people, we're okay with it. Like, oh, isn't it wonderful? He chose like a 14-year-old girl. It tells us anything can happen. But don't overlook that that culture was one of the powerful, violently oppressing the weak and the poor. The powerful at the top violently oppressing the weak and the poor. And Israel had lived for centuries under that oppression of the powerful oppressing the weak and the poor. Every day was a potential for violence at the hands of King Herod or Caesar or anybody else in your community that was more powerful than you. What Israel needed was a warrior king What he does is he picks an unwed, rural, poor teenage girl, the lowest and weakest person in that society. It was a terrible choice by God. It's like dumb. Really, her? You got better choices, right? But it's a reminder that the God of the Bible, we see this from Micah 5 and the promises to Abraham and the promises to David and the promises to Bethlehem, that God looks to the heart not to the things that we look to. And so he chooses the least and the lowly because that's the gospel message. The gospel message is this. In Jesus, Mary's son, in Jesus, God entered humanity. He entered humanity to suffer and die, to be rejected, to be an outcast. For us, Christmas is the story of the greatest condescending to the least so that we who are weak and sinful and broken and needy might be lifted up. The story of Christmas, the story of the gospel is one of grace. Christianity is a message that it's not you getting better, becoming a right person, getting yourself in order. It's God coming down to you to lift you up. God condescending to show you his love and mercy. And that's why the Christian message is actually incomprehensible to us. Look, we love Christmas. We love the trees and the music and the food and all the accoutrements that go with it. But when we really grasp what happened at Christmas, what it's claiming happened, 
we actually don't know what to do with it. Mary believed in the God of dramatic reversals and his condescending love. This God chose her and entered her life, and quite literally entered her life. Betsy Barber, writing in Biola's Advent Project online, wrote this about what God was doing through Mary and in humanity. Listen to the visceral nature of it, the, the very tangible earthly nature of God's condescension to our humanity. Might make you a little bit uncomfortable, but um, sit with it. When God became man to rescue us, he put aside the glory of his deity. He joined his gritty, dirty creations, that's us, and became a powerless fetus within a teenage mother woman's uterus, depending upon her breath and blood, placenta for his sustenance and growth. How shocking, how wonderful. God became abased and humanity became exalted. What is God doing? What does the message of the Magnificat say to us today? I think it does say that if you are the sort of person who has found yourself chosen last, falling short of the categories that you want to be accepted, if you're not chosen, remember this, the God of the Bible, the God of Christmas, the God of the gospel narrative, does not look on the outside. He looks at the heart. Mary knew she was of humble estate. She declared that. Now, that might be obvious. She was a poor, unwed woman, 14 years old, right? Of course she's humble. She knows that. But, you know, if you've struggled your whole life, if you've been on the outside, if you've been last, it's actually hard to have that sort of self-understanding. It's much easier to be angry, bitter, blame others for the state of things. It's much easier when things go wrong to actually be self-absorbed, which is the opposite of humility. But Mary, even in her brokenness or poverty, she's willing to acknowledge that. That was her starting place is, I have nothing to offer. A servant of the Lord of humble estate, that's who I am. In other words, her heart was open to what God wanted to do with her. Her heart was open to God choosing her. And remember that, God isn't looking at the outside. He's looking at our heart. And also note that God is with and for the weak and the poor and the unchosen. And so again, if you are struggling yourself today, God does not see you, does not view you, does not evaluate you as the world does. So don't look to the culture standards. Don't even look to your own standards. Look to God, because his standard is about a humble heart. That's what he's looking for. An open heart, willing to accept what God wants to do. And his invitation through Mary's song here is to rest in my acceptance and love of you. Not because you're good enough, but because I love you. The message of the Magnificat also has something to say to the successful to the first chosen, 
to those who are doing all right. On one level, it's a little bit of a warning. It's a little bit of a warning, much like the things that Jesus talks about later. It's harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God than for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. It's not that rich people cannot enter God's kingdom, but when you are successful in the things that you care about, you don't need saving. You are your own God. You can control your environment. If your kids are happy and that's what you care about, if your career is great and that's all that you care about, when you're successful, you don't need saving. And so you're more likely to be your own God. And that's the warning of the Magnificat too. But inside of it, there's also a calling. It's a calling to instead to view our success with humility and open-handedness. That when you are successful in whatever way, you realize, I don't actually need this. This doesn't make me who I am. Nor do I deserve it. Recognizing that any success that you have in life is really also part of God's hand on you. Would you be as wealthy as you are today if you had lived a thousand years ago or grown up in the mountains of Nepal? You work really hard, but there's so much outside of your control. The Magnificat invites us to that humility and open-handedness that says, this is not all about me. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away, and I will bless his name, regardless of whether I win or I lose, whether I get the things I'm looking for and striving for or not. And it's an invitation to use whatever riches we have, whatever wealth or strength, your beauty, your athleticism, your connections, to use them for God's purposes, to lift up the poor and the weak and the lowly, to do his work of justice until he comes again. The calling to all of us is to live out what God was doing in this world through Jesus. Another writer in that Biola Advent series summed up the calling to all of us in Jesus this way, the Jesus uh, coming through Mary at Christmas. The breathtaking act of self-emptying love that is the incarnation at Christmas beckons us, calls us to a beautiful, impossible standard in every part of our lives. Does God command us to stand up for the oppressed? Does he ask us to give away our wealth? Does he call us to exchange our impoverished, self-focused lives for the abundant life he offers? Yes. Come follow me, Jesus says. Advent is a season of longing, of hope, for God to advent again. Advent means arrive or come. So God did arrive at Christmas, and our longing is for him to come again. And Advent invites us to prepare our hearts for the arrival of the Lord. How do we do that? How do we respond to this Magnificat call? Open yourself to the Lord, because God wants in, not just to this world, but into your life. Betsy Barber, writing in that Advent project, wrote this, Mary invited Jesus into her heart and into her body, because Mary was open to what the Lord wanted to do. That's the call of this 
passage here of Mary's response. Because she was low and humble and it, it realized that, she was open to what the Lord wanted to do and how he wanted to do it. She said, I'm your servant. Do with me what you want. That takes a humility and a trust. And she did trust because she believed God. She believed God's word. And as a result of believing God's word, she desired what God desired for her life. God's salvation, God's way, even if it meant her own suffering. And so Mary opened herself up to God's plan. She allowed God to be formed in her life, literally. God chooses you and me. He chooses each one of us. But the only way to receive the fullness of God in your life is to embrace the fullness of your lowliness and humility and your need of him. And so to open yourself up to his fullness. Let us pray. God Almighty, creator of the heavens and the earth, Lord of all history, who came down and condescended in the holy child of Bethlehem, descend to each of us, we pray. Cast out our sin, enter in, be born in us today. We hear the Christmas angels speaking to Elizabeth, to Mary, to the shepherds. Their great glad tidings tell. So we pray, come to us, abide with us, be formed with us, and be formed in us, our Lord Emmanuel, in whose name we pray. Amen.